Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include Dynamic Sky Panorama Glass Roof, Front Row Massaging Seats, you know you want that, Available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I cover all things food, from cooking to gardening to fabulous ingredients to junk food, health, sustainability, even policy. You might say I'm obsessed with everything about food. Food is the one substance that connects everything to everything else, and it connects us all. Not only can we not live without it, not only does it determine much of what goes on in the world, but we love it. Hi, and welcome to Food. I'm Mark Bittman. I'm joined today by Stephen Satterfield. Unless you've been introduced to the beautifully done, brilliantly assembled Whetstone magazine, check it out. Or you're a person who's sought out diverse storytelling and food, especially the less told stories, many of people of color in general and African Americans in particular, you may not have heard of Satterfield until recently. Last month, however, Netflix launched High on the Hog, a four-part series of which Stephen is the host and which tells some of the story of the African diaspora through food. 
High on the Hog is deservedly getting loads of attention. It's groundbreaking television, and Satterfield's empathy, emotion, understanding, articulateness, professionalism, and intelligence combine to make him an ideal central figure of a series that's not only well done, but important. You'll find out more about Stephen and Whetstone Media, a project in which he's deeply involved, in this interview, which I hope you'll find as engaging as I did. And as it's getting along into summer, I'll also share some great seasonal recipes, one for asparagus and sesame salad, another for snap peas with walnuts and roquefort, and finally, an unusual unavocado guacamole. We'll also answer your questions and more, all coming up on Food. I wonder how many of you know that you can make guacamole with things other than avocado. Perfect this time of year is guacamole made with asparagus or peas. So cook about a pound of asparagus or peas. If it's asparagus, chop them. They should be super, super tender. Not mushy, but almost there. Then toss together with your kind of normal guacamole ingredients— a quarter cup of chopped shallot or onion, a tiny bit of minced garlic, some chili, it can be fresh or or dried, a little bit of chili powder, a teaspoon or so, salt and pepper, of course, and lots of fresh lime juice. Garnish that with cilantro. With asparagus, it's really a revelation, and with peas, it's just as fresh as spring. This is one of the simplest, quickest, and best asparagus recipes I know. Take a bunch, any size pretty much, trim off the bottoms, and then cut the spears on the bias. Cook them quickly, either in hot oil or boiling water, just until they turn bright green. Then remove them from the heat before they overcook. Toss them with some sesame oil, a tablespoon or two, a splash of rice vinegar. You could use pretty much any vinegar there. A drizzle of soy sauce to taste, and a tiny bit of sugar if you like. And then garnish that with some toasted sesame seeds and chopped scallions. The whole thing will take 10 minutes, and it's just incredible. Coming up next, my interview with Stephen Satterfield. Let me officially say welcome. So, Stephen Satterfield, welcome to Food with Mark Pittman. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I think I first became aware of you when you were working um, at NOPA wow. in San Francisco because Emma, my daughter, came in. I think she went in to drink. Um, and she was there from 2009 to 2012. So somewhere in that time span, That's I mean, right. she somehow mentioned you to me because she was like, oh, there's this black stumbly NOPA. He's really great, blah, blah, blah. So she was working at Delfina, I think. I remember Yep, yep. So was that before or after you spent time in South Africa? That was after. Basically, yeah, I, I was working as a sommelier and a manager at NOPA at that time. But I really knew that I loved wine and wanted to pursue it as a vocation. But the communities um, that I was a part of in wine were very, very homogenous, not only racially, but really just culturally, you know, really just not a lot of uh, diversity in 
lived experience. So I moved to Atlanta where I'm from in 07 and started a nonprofit um, called International Society of Africans and Wine. It's a bit of a mouthful, but we, we called it the ISAW Foundation. Um, and essentially what we were doing is working with um, Black vintners and Black folks uh, throughout the, the wine industry in the Western Cape of South Africa, um, mainly helping them get their wines uh, distributed in the U.S., and then um, creating a lot of media and marketing support on behalf of these Black vintners. And when I say support, essentially, you know, we're talking about an industry that was founded on um, stolen land and um, enslaved labor um, through the Dutch colonization. And so the genesis of the wine industry in South Africa, um, very much like our own history here in the U.S., um, is one that is based in fundamentally exploitative labor. Um, and this is part of what we have to take into account um, when we have conversations about wine. And that was important to me way back then. Um, and that wasn't the, the kinds of conversations that I felt were being had in the world of wine. Um, ended up folding the org in 2010, moving to San Francisco, jumping back in the wine industry vis-a-vis uh, -vis Nopa as a sommelier and, and manager there, where I met Emma, who was lovely and used to come <laughs> in and watch her work uh, at Delfina. I mean, everything you just said about wine in South Africa is true of agriculture in general, stolen land, exploited labor, beginning with enslaved people. So I somehow have a feeling, I mean, we don't know each other at all. I somehow have a feeling you would have outgrown that even had it worked because wine is such a sliver of the big agricultural picture and the big eating picture. I used to write about wine and I got, I just kind of felt like, yeah, there's better ways to look at things than through a luxury product, which is essentially what it is. I mean, I think what I took from that is basically a conviction that um, it wasn't possible to really be involved in fine dining or luxury products like wine without me um, bringing a, a more full truth to, to my engagement in the work. And so, you know, I love luxury. I love <laughs> um, pleasure. And these are the things that brought me to eating and drinking um, as a way of making a living. But um, I do believe that there's a responsibility that comes with that. And in the world of wine, you know, a lot of the work that I have been trying to do in, I guess, what I call like decolonizing wine is really helping people understand that, you know, wine is not just the provenance of, of Europeans and, and Burgundy or Bordeaux. You know, this is connected to a human history of fermented grapes that dates back thousands and thousands of years. And so a lot of the the culture that has been developed around wine um, has really been exclusionary and classist and racist. And um, whether or not as an industry, we feel we um, participated or perpetuated in that knowingly, it doesn't change the fact that it happened or and continues to happen in many ways, although things are improving. So I think, you know, for me, what I took away from that experience is a, a real belief in the power of story 
um, and wine as a vessel to get people talking about apartheid in South Africa as a way of connecting that to the wine industry, I found on a grassroots level to be very effective. And that same framework is really what we what I brought into Whetstone, um, which centers on agrarian-based stories. They center it centers on human beings, people who are close to the land, close to the communities that they write about, um, and trying to activate um, and really radicalize people, I think, through this connection to food that begins first with um, place and also personal identity so that people really feel a different level of investment in these types of stories. Point taken on the wine and fine dining, by the way, but that's an, a good segue into where I wanted to go next, which was your interest in media and the origins of Whetstone. You know, maybe I should just say for listeners who don't know that Whetstone is a beautiful and meaningful magazine, website, and podcast. Why don't you start at the beginning of the Whetstone story? Yeah, I mean, the Whetstone story for me was really about um, combining something that I had already dedicated my life to, which was food. Um, and as I alluded to, being involved in food meaningfully um, in a way that I felt I could um, live my values um, as hard as that is to do and as contradictory as that is um, almost on a daily um, hour to hour basis. But, um, you know, Whetstone is a magazine that is about food origins, culture and anthropology. Um, we look at food as a means of understanding our past, understanding how we came to be. Um, and essentially, you know, we've printed seven uh, magazines. We've done over 30 podcasts. Um, we uh, have online editorial, um, uh, a journal from over 80 countries worldwide. Um, we have a new regional journal that we just launched um, from South Asia. Um, and so really, um, this is, you know, kind of our overarching philosophy um, is that the, the story of food is really the story of humanity and vice versa. You just said the story of food is the story of humanity. And you also said at, at or towards the end of High on the Hog, our story is America, that our meaning African-American people. Um the original question I had written down was, what do you want, when, when white people watch High on the Hog, what do you want them to take away from it? And then I was going to say, when black people watch High on the Hog, what do you want? And maybe it's not white people, maybe it's everybody, but how are we supposed to think about the past and how do we act now to make things right? Like when I think you said the word us, um, and that us is put there very purposefully, that that is put there as a signal to Black viewers worldwide to know, yes, we are speaking directly to you. Yes, this is a diasporic story that we are celebrating. And that acknowledgement is meaningful. And it's meaningful because we've been living in its absence all along. High on the Hog is timely, as so many people tell me, but it's also way past time. Yeah. Both. <laughs> Yeah. Right. And so it's important for us to reclaim these stories, to push back against the erasure that happens all over the world 
And a lot of the times the erasure does begin with food, with the story of food, because it is an agrarian story. It is a land-based story. Land is the center of all kinds of conflict, of erasure and violence that continues today. We see in episode two in High on the Hog, what happened to Gabrielle's family with eminent domain in Apex, North Carolina. This is a continuation of what Black folks have been and Indigenous folks um, have been saying you know, since the entire time that we've had colonial contact in this country or since the onset of the transatlantic slave trade in our case as, as Black people. So I think that, you know, for white people, what to take away from it, what I've been saying is I hope that people begin to look at other areas within their own life where the story that they've accepted to be true is not an inclusive story and does not include the voices of the people who did not hold any power in shaping that narrative. And those are the places to begin to look for what is true. And I really feel that High on the Hog captured that spirit, this thesis that we talked about at the beginning, you know, around food to have this transformative, radicalizing power that's rooted in identity has now been proven, at least to me, true in a spectacular way in getting this direct feedback from people all over the world who've been touched by High on the Hog. And um, I'm just really, really happy that it exists. And I'm flattered and still kind of gobsmacked that I got to be a part of it. I'm happy it exists too. And I, it is long overdue, but very welcome at the same time. And I was amazed when Exterminate All the Brutes came out that HBO would take what would have once been seen as an enormous risk to make a show that is essentially, you know, a description of white the history of white supremacy and an acknowledgement of it. And High on the Hog, you know, coming at it from a different angle, equally bold and it's one good sign. It's not the end of the struggle by any means, but these are good signs. I wonder, you know, clearly you were well aware of all of these issues before you started shooting, but the travel had to be an amazing experience. And I I just wonder how much you learned as a result of doing High on the Hog. I mean, it sounds so obvious, but the the difference between a lived experience uh, with a particular community versus reading about it. Um, And I felt that most in Texas, in Houston, mm-hmm. uh, which was episode four with the Northeastern Trail Riders and the Bruno family um, and Larry Callis at the Black Cowboy Museum. I mean, this for me, I, I kind of knew about the Black Cowboys, but I hadn't spent so much time in Texas. Um, and so everything from just the particular twang the vernacular the the posture the the shit talking the camaraderie the pride the history i mean it's just like it's such a rich and vibrant um and active community and yet um as a black man from georgia um really distinct from from you know my black kin in in the southeastern U.S. South that I um, grew up knowing and, and loving, and of course, yet somehow uh, incredibly familiar as well. So I think just for me, being able to touch down in these um, 
you know, respective sub communities within our um, broader black community has really um, is the thing that I'll take away is just the actual human relationships that were were made and um, just how much I felt I understood by being um, in that physical proximity. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more food in just a minute. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A lot can happen in the next 3 years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. 
Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. I spent a little time in Charleston a few years ago, and I thought you were very patient and kind when you when you visited Charleston and when you talked about Charleston. I mean, you did say it, it felt a little heavy to you, I think was the word you used, or you felt the weight of it or something. I mean, when I was there, I just... I just felt like here is a city that really has to come to terms with its past. It really doesn't feel like it has. And um, man, even, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to be a black person in that city because I was so uncomfortable there as a whatever I am, but it was, it's a, it's a hard place in a way. Um, yeah, it feels a bit haunted. No disrespect to any of your listeners from Charleston. Yeah, but, no um, disrespect. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I've I've always felt that about um, Charleston, and I don't really think there's a way to disconnect um, as a black person once you have the knowledge that this was the port of entry in, into this country. You know, after this terrible voyage and um, and just the loss of life and de- devastation, um, I feel is really palpable, and I often feel that on or near um, Atlantic waters. And um, of course, as you alluded to, the ways in which things in Charleston seem to be fixed in time around um, hierarchy, especially, um, adds to that discomfort. But it feels, um, I feel ghost when I'm there. Yeah. 
it was uh, it was really beautiful when you when you moved from uh, the west coast of Africa to the east coast of the United States and and thought about the Atlantic. I mean, forget about the journey. I was just thinking about the water. But you know, once you think about the journey, it becomes so so poignant. You talked a little bit about the contradictions of living your daily values in in food, and I think I know what you mean by that. And if I do, then I, I feel the same way, but I want to make sure that I do, and I'd like you, if you just expand on that for a second. I mean, food is um, destroying lives and destroying the planet. And um, every time we eat, which is hopefully every day, um, we are contributing or not contributing to that reality. Um, it's really that simple. And yet, for instance, um, as we are, I guess, uh, here in the States, in all of our privilege beginning to come out of this pandemic, how much um, stuff that I consumed, um, you know, that was poorly packaged and wasteful plastics. You know, even when uh, uh, I tried to prevent it, you know, with sort of COVID protocols, a lot of restaurants, you know, shifted to serving um, out of plastic cups or you know, things like that. And so um, unless you are part of a community that is living purely off the land in an enclosed ecosystem, which, of course, most of us are not, it's always a, a matter of um, negotiating, you know, I, I have like, I guess in a descending hierarchy, um, would put like location or proximity to wherever I am. Um, and then, you know, that kind of takes care of the, the seasonal component. And then you really just hope that, um, on the labor side, um, that the person that you're looking in the eye is, is taking care of their people, or maybe you're taking care of them directly. But again, even at that level, we just don't know. That's sort of like just one toe into all of the complications with just trying to be a decent human and eat food. Right. Yeah. The second toe being that even that position puts you in a place where you're you're feeling good about those kinds of decisions. And then you realize that you're lucky that you're able to make those kind of decisions, that those decisions themselves put you in an awkward position because not everybody can do that. So, oh, yeah. I mean, that's um, or even eat. Um, so yeah, I, the privilege I, I think is just, you know, you're right. Uh, not enough can, can be said. It can never be overstated. Um, but you know, I have for all of my adult life really, um, been sharing these values with others living, um, you know, as much as possible, these values going to the Portland state farmer's market, um, as an 18 year old, uh, Eugene farmer's market. Um, but like I said, I really came to a lot of this from a place of, of pleasure. So when, even when I was a broke college student, you know, um, I loved plums, I loved peaches. I loved, um, going to the market and just eating the best, of whatever in the soil in Oregon is so utterly magical. I don't know mm -hmm. if people know, but Oregon, wow. Um, yeah. Everything grows. Um, and so it's not new for me, but if I wasn't procuring in these ways, I think that would be whack, you know, even in light of my privilege. So I'm able to overlook that. I don't feel as like conflicted in, in my privilege. I just, we all like have to 
live in and sit within that every single second of every day. Um, but as far as, you know, just how I spend my dollars um, and, and feed myself, um, you know, it's not always easy to do that in a way that feels wholesome and connected. And, and that's just a reality. Yeah, I wish I wish more people could get past. Obviously, food is a great source of pleasure for everybody who gets to eat it, and then increasingly, um, to the extent that that. But when people ask me what I want to say or what I want to say in general, it's just to try to get people to think more seriously about food and to think where it comes from and what it means and everything it's been through to get to your mouth to give you the nourishment and pleasure that it's giving you. But so why media? That is where you're focusing now. How how can a black-owned media company like Whetstone help to diversify the media landscape, the food media landscape in particular? Luckily, Whetstone's already done that um, as far as diversifying the food media landscape. Yeah, for um, sure. But, um, you know, media is is directly connected to story. And if you really believe in story, as a form of power, then you have to believe in media too, which is our modern day vessel or vessels for disseminating stories. Um, most of our consumption, media consumption, um, whether it be news consumption or leisure consumption is still narratively driven. So as humans, it is in our nature to tell stories to one another so that we can make sense of our experience here on earth. And this is especially true from, you know, from the African diaspora as we are um, a very, um, uh, a people who, who really have relied on our oral traditions to, to share knowledge. What we're doing at Whetstone is we know people love food and we are basically using story as a means to deepen people's relationship with food. And the way that we do that is by um, helping them see their own identity. I think this is a crucial point in whatever the food or the dish is that we're talking about. This is why we've worked in over 80 countries, because it's essential to see yourself connected to a you know millennia long pro project of being a human being and the story of food is the story of migration and it is a migration story that is inclusive of peoples and plants and information or technology if you will and so understanding these migration patterns through food really, really, really helps connect us to humanity, to our, our own ancestry. It makes us feel as if we have a place in the world. And when people feel secure in their place in the world, they're at least in a position to offer place and space for other people. Identity, migration, origin, ancestry, these are all... Um, components of our approach to, to storytelling. And um, again, I think, you know, high on the hog is, I'm just so thrilled. I think this is the first time we've really, really seen the ability of food to galvanize a community globally 
around real issues that otherwise would not be talked about. We can't really talk to white people about slavery because of the discomfort that it makes them feel. And yet, if we talk about slavery in the context of the migration of food and people, even though the migration was forced, it still allows us to get to a place where in society we could otherwise never reach. And that's the power of story. Story shifts culture and shapes culture and therefore has the capacity to change culture. And that's what we're trying to do. That's great. You call part of Whetstone a collective. And I know that's the, I think that's the audio part. Um, I wonder what that means to you. And, and I know there's a crowdfunding campaign going on. So I want to make sure I give you an opportunity to talk about that a little bit. Thank you. I super appreciate that. Um, we are engaging in our um, first crowdfunding campaign um, to raise a quarter million dollars for a brand new component of uh, Whetstone, which is a podcast company. Um, and so we, um, as maybe some listeners know, had a podcast called Point of Origin, um, which is exactly as it sounds. And of course, after listening to this conversation, you have a sense of what it was all about. But, um, you know, we, we shared stories um, from the world of food all over the world um, and had such an amazing response to the podcast and also found so many other stories that we wanted to tell but didn't have the capacity for um, that we really are now looking at that as a blessing and opportunity to expand our production um, in the world of audio, which we as creators love. Um, we love that it allows us to connect globally um, and viscerally and intimately um, in a way that's not always possible, you know, with the magazine as much as we love it. And it's the core of the work that we do. And so, um, yeah, just speaking on the need of diversity and identity and regional focus, um, I think within these these regions and, and um, you know, different um, both contemporary and historical connections being made through food by people who are really qualified to speak intelligently on it um, based on their knowledge or lived experience is something that we haven't really seen kind of in a consolidated, um, networked kind of way. And that's our value proposition for the listeners, you know, is to give you um, a whole new slate of podcasts from brilliant and talented hosts from all over the world um, talking about food with a level of depth and care and knowledge that is um, otherwise really hard to come by. Website for listeners who might want to help you with that crowdfunding campaign? Thank you. All um, details for that campaign can be found on whetstonemagazine.com. It's W-H-E-T-S-T-O-N-E, whetstonemagazine.com, or on our social. Um, we'll be doing lots of interviews with some of the hosts, um, lots more info on the campaign on IG, which is just Whetstone Magazine, at Whetstone Magazine. So thanks for everything, Stephen. Thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. It was really great. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for making space. Here's a nice little recipe for snap peas, which are in season right now. But later in the summer, you can do this with green beans like haricot vert, anything else that's crisp. Uh, it features walnut and blue cheese like Roquefort. 
Cook about a pound of snap peas in salted boiling water just until they're tender. Then drain and plunge them into ice water to stop the cooking. Cook a shallot in olive oil just until it's translucent for about a minute or so. Then add a handful of chopped walnuts and cook that until it's fragrant. Another minute. Add the peas back to the pan with some salt and pepper and toss that all until it's warm. Serve right away with Roquefort cheese crumbled on top. Now it's time for some of your questions, and today I'm joined by Kate and Carrie to help out with some of these. Hi, Mark. It's Sarah Adams. And my question for you is, I was diagnosed with breast cancer three years ago and completely changed my diet, really tried to go more plant-based. And I've been eating lots of greens and vegetables and plants for three years now. Wanted to know what's different now. Um, what should I do? What should I be thinking about? What foods are best for me? And I think this is really helpful for people who are just recently diagnosed is to think about something that's really controllable. You can control what you put in your mouth. You can control what you shop for. So I think this will be useful for your, your listeners. Thanks. Love your work. Bye-bye. Uh, obviously, we needed to do a little research to answer this question since we're not oncologists or nutritional specialists. Uh, and Kate's done that and is going to answer this question as best we can. So we are in no way qualified to answer this, but I do have a friend who's an oncologist specializing in breast cancer at Sloan Kettering here in New York, and I asked him for his thoughts. He actually thinks that the American Cancer Society has some really nice evidence-based summaries for patients regarding alcohol, diet, and supplements, among other things. We're going to link to the relevant page on the Bittman Project, but the short answer, according to the American Cancer Society, is this. Most research on possible links between diet and the risk of breast cancer coming back has looked at broad dietary patterns rather than specific foods. In general, it's not clear if eating any specific type of diet can help lower your risk of breast cancer coming back. Studies have found that breast cancer survivors who eat diets high in vegetables, fruits, whole grains, chicken, and fish tend to live longer than those who eat diets that have more refined sugars, fats, red meats, and processed meats. But as you might imagine, it's not clear if that's due to effects on breast cancer or to the general benefits of eating a healthy diet. I know this might not be as specific of an answer as you were hoping for, but I did find the information they offer useful, and it was recommended by one of the smartest people I know. That's great. I mean, so really the short answer is you're in the right place going more plant-based. And also, I mean, it sounds like what's true for everyone is true for cancer patients as well, which is move towards a healthier diet. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Thanks, Kate. Our last question is from Sarah, a different Sarah than the first one. I'm leaving this question to Carrie, who's been cooking on an electric stove for I don't know how long. Hi, I'm Sarah from Portland, Oregon. Um, most people I know who, who consider themselves serious cooks will only use a gas stove. And I was wondering um, what the environmental impact of home cooking with gas is and are there technologies in development to mitigate those effects? Thanks. 
Hi, Sarah. This is Carrie Conan, and you have picked a topic near and dear to my heart. Since I uh, have cooked on electric stoves um, almost my entire professional career, and I am uh, not being defensive, but I am in defense of electric stoves. Um, I think let's set aside your your part of your questions about energy consumption because there's so many variables about electric versus gas, whether your electricity is generated by, from a renewable source or whether you're on propane. But, you know, there's a basic fact, and that is true for me and a lot of other people, is that you don't get a choice. Um, your house may not be plumbed for um, gas or, and, or it's too prohibitive to have an expensive gas stove or you have a gas stove in a rental house and it's not doesn't have very many BTUs and it's not any better than an electric stove. So let's talk about ways to make the electric stove work for people. Um, one thing I've found over the years is that you make the residual heat, which is a huge complaint. I, rec- I recognize this, but the fact that you get the burner is still hot when you turn it off. You got to make that work for you. And you either move the pan if you're cooking too aggressively or you leave it where it is and take advantage of the residual heat. The other complaint is that you don't get a char on things. And I this I do really miss. And it's important for my work that I be able to do that. So I have a gas grill and you can get those relatively inexpensive. And I, you know, I I live in the Pacific Northwest. It rains all the time and I still use it even in, you know, winter. So I think the bottom line here is that you get to know your equipment, but, and the only way you do that is by cooking on it. Thanks a lot for calling. That's it for this week's listener questions. If you have a question about food, cooking, whatever, call our toll-free listener question line at 833-FOOD-POD. That's 833-366-3763, and leave us a message. Tell us where you're from, a little about yourself, and ask your question. Thanks. We write and talk a lot about how food can be seen as humanity's most important interconnective tissue. Not only how it unites us all, we are all eaters, but how it connects just about every important issue, starting with land, air, and water, and continuing with policy, economics, and how we relate to one another. The stories of slavery, imperialism, land ownership, even wealth, all begin with food and farming. High on the Hog shows a great deal of that, and that's one of the things that makes it worth watching. Amazingly, It's entertaining as hell. Thanks again to my guest, Stephen Satterfield, for coming on the show. You should check out High on the Hog on Netflix. And you can follow Stephen on Twitter or Instagram at Stephen with a P-H-I-S-A-W-S-T-E-P-H-E-N. Folks, if you liked today's episode, and if you're still listening, I can assume that you did, then please subscribe to Food with Mark Bittman on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to listen. It would be real helpful if you left us a five-star review on Apple, and detailed reviews are the best way for new listeners to discover the show. You can find the recipe from today's show in the episode show notes or at BittmanProject.com or at markbitman.com. They all kind of go to the same place. Finally, 
Food with Mark Bittman is a part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Check out Airwave's other shows at airwavemedia.com or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Mark Bittman, and thanks again for listening to Food. See you next week. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.